You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Our reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes ears heavy, and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, It will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Isaiah chapter 6. Beyond who is Jesus Christ and what did he accomplish on the cross of Calvary, there may not be a more important question for us to answer outside of what is true conversion. What is true conversion? Uh, It's a great joy uh, to pastor, to help lead a church such as this, one with such great spiritual diversity. Uh, There's some of you in the room who are here as questioners. Uh, You're skeptics. You're doubters. Uh, you're, You're not yet following Jesus. You're here in some ways wrestling with the gospel, wrestling with truth. Uh, and for you, uh, whether you know it or not, one of the most significant questions that you must answer is, what is true conversion? Or simply put, how does one become a Christian? Some of you might be on the complete polar opposite side of the spectrum. You don't remember a day in your life when you were not following Jesus, where you did not love Jesus. Maybe you're more, your story is more like mine where God sent to you his saving grace later on in life. 
but for either one of those, uh, it's of utmost importance to answer the question, what is true conversion? One, to help you actually understand what has taken place in your own life, but also uh, as you've been sent to go and help other people understand possibly what God is doing in their life. So it's important, it's imperative that we answer the question, what is true conversion? And God has given us a great gift this morning in Isaiah chapter 6. Here in Isaiah chapter 6, we get to look at the conversion and commission of Isaiah. We get to see unfold before our eyes God converting Isaiah. And not only that, uh, we also get to see uh, God's commissioning of Isaiah by God to go and to be a prophet. So those are the two things that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the conversion of Isaiah in verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to turn the corner and we're going to look at the commission of Isaiah in verses 8 through 13. Now, I love Isaiah chapter 6. Many of you know I uh, had my life redirected by the grace of God about eight and a half years ago as a part of this community. Uh, My wife, Tracy, and I were converted here. And I I can still remember, as I was wrestling through what was going on in my soul eight and a half years ago, men in this church community, men like uh, J.D. Sinkbile and Kevin Palladino and even Pastor Bob Thune, would again and again and again take me back to Isaiah chapter 6 as a way of rooting the truth of what I was experiencing in God's word. It was a few years even after that where I came back to Isaiah chapter 6 again. It would have been uh, in 2008 when I was beginning to feel a call into vocational ministry. I remember coming back and and going back and looking at the commissioning of Isaiah, his calling. And I can vividly remember meditating on this simple question. If I was given uh, Isaiah's commission, would I go? And it's a daunting commission. And inevitably, my answer was yes. Not because of the commission itself and what it entailed, but because of who it was who was doing the commissioning and what it meant to be a part of God's divine strategy. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the conversion and commission of Isaiah. All right, here we go. If you, uh, you should, on your way in, have grabbed one of these or been handed one of these, uh, this is the cross chart. If you have one, hold one up. Let me see it. Okay, this is going to be beautiful, thank you. This is going to be our visual aid for the first half of the sermon as we're aiming to answer the question, what is true conversion? Okay, and the goal, side note here, goal walking out of here today is that you would be able to take a blank piece of paper after this morning and you would be able to draw out the cross chart and explain it to somebody who has no idea what you're talking about. Okay, so that's the goal going out of here. All right, you can do it, trust me. All right, let's look at the text. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. All right, stop. Why the historical reference? Why is this placed in there? To us, this seems a little trivial, a little irrelevant, but trust me, it would not have been for the people of Isaiah's day. Allow me, allow me to illustrate. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. The day John F. Kennedy was assassinated. 
September 11th, 2001. If you lived during any of those dates, you remember them vividly, don't you? See, the, the death of King Uzziah marked the end of a very prosperous season for God's people. And they knew it was coming to an end. And his death, death left them asking the questions, what's happening? Are we going to be okay? Is everything that was being built up now coming undone? Is it now unraveling? And in the same year that King Uzziah died, the one true king over all of heaven, over all of earth, over the entire universe, pulls back the curtain for Isaiah and reveals himself to him. Let's take a look. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. March Madness is upon us. Is it not? Yes. Two weeks ago, my wife Tracy and I had the privilege of getting our hands on some Creighton basketball tickets, uh, and we're able, yeah, okay, we got one fan in here. We were able to go down to the Century League Center on senior night, and were able to watch, had the privilege of watching Doug McDermott play his last home game as a college senior. And for those of you who are um, kind of sports fanatics who are interested in sports, uh, you will agree that it's easy to say that Doug McDermott is uh, by far set apart as one of the greatest college basketball players of all time. And that night on senior night, we got to, we got to witness before a capacity crowd, nearly 20,000 people, uh, him set his uh, career-high scoring record for a game, scored 45 points, also uh, entered, it became a 3,000-point scorer in his career and became the seventh all-time leading scorer in college basketball history. It was an impressive, impressive night. Now, I'm not uh, one who uh, is kind of a cheerleader type. That's not my disposition. I tend to go to sporting events even like this, even if I'm excited. I kind of stand at sporting events like this and publicly mock people who are chanting and cheering out loud, especially grown men. Um, And I acknowledge that part of me wants to do the same thing. Uh, But I could not help it that night. It was something special. There were moments throughout the game where I was leaning forward. Okay, and we were up high, 10 rows from the back, leaning forward just to try to get my eyes closer to see what was happening. And it wasn't just me, it was everybody. Everybody was just leaning in and cheering. and just It was excitement, it was almost awe-inspiring. And when Doug McDermott scored his 3,000th career point, I could not help but get out of my seat and cheer with the 20,000 people who just made ruckus, just made a ruckus, a, a whole bunch of noise in celebration of this great milestone, Right? And it wasn't as though the foundations of the Century League Center were beginning to shake, okay? But it was loud, and it was awe-inspiring. Now, I want you to compare that vision with the vision that God gives to Isaiah. When the roof of the temple opens up, and God gets a glimpse, or Isaiah gets a glimpse into heaven 
to see God as he reveals himself. Now, next week, Pastor Bob's going to be back. He's going to preach out of Isaiah 6. He's going to focus on the holiness of God. So I don't need to say everything, but what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to the surroundings of the temple and how, how the whole environment responds to the holiness of God. Okay? So, uh, picture the temple. The temple was nearly 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 40 feet high, okay? So for visual reference, can picture the back of that wall to the back of that wall, okay? Picture it being maybe this, these two sections right here in the middle and the ceiling being roughly, oh, I don't know how high this is, but maybe this high, okay? So you picture this space, and, and, and Isaiah says in his vision, the, the train of God's robe begins to fill up this entire space as the heavens are opened, and Isaiah gets to look, and he sees, and he looks, and he sees that there's, there's seraphim flying around. Now, seraphim uh, basically means burning ones. These are white-hot angelic beings who are just on fire, flying around God, worshiping him, praising him, and waiting at a moment's notice to obey his commands. Okay? And they're just... They're moving around, and we don't see from the text actually how many there are. We know that there's at least two, because in a moment, one's going to proclaim to another one. But in Revelation chapter 5, when God gives a vision to uh, the apostle John, right, there are myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of angelic beings kind of just flying around God as he reveals himself, as he opens up the curtain into heaven. And one thing I want you to notice about these seraphim, these sinless, perfect angelic beings in the presence of God what do they hide their face these perfect beings still hide themselves from the tremendous glory and holiness of God and one shouts to another and I, I don't want you to hear this um, as Oh, how can I frame it out? I don't want you to hear this as though it's just like sweet melody sung to the, the soothing string of a violin, all right? Not that I have anything against violins or violinists, okay? But this is loud, powerful praise that is about to shake the foundations of the thresholds into the temple. One seraphim shouts to another, Holy, holy, holy! is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Powerful praise from the seraphim. I was reading one commentator who was looking uh, into this text and he was trying to, trying to get the weight or the gravity of God's holiness. And, and in some ways he was speculating. You can't don't read too much into this, but he said, as well as the train of God's robe filling up the room, there was also smoke that was filling up the room. And he speculated and said that smoke may have been billowing out of the uh, altar of burnt offerings, a place where sin needed to be atoned for. And he said, it was quite possible that the almighty God, the holy, perfect one who was high and lifted up as he was coming down to dwell with humanity, as he was coming down to dwell with Isaiah and to reveal himself, the altar that would atone for all the sins of God's people was like a raging, fiery furnace, and the smoke that was coming out from there was just filling up the temple. It's an interesting vision, isn't it? That brings us to the, the cross chart. Take a look at the cross chart. 
Because what, what's happening in this text, what God is providing for Isaiah, is the same thing that he's giving us today. And that is an awareness of his holiness. Right? One of the prerequisites to conversion is having an awareness of the holiness of God. How do we cultivate that, you might ask? God reveals himself. He reveals, reveals himself in his word. He reveals himself in his creation. We also can cultivate an awareness of God's holiness as we enter into worship. When we started with worship this morning, we sung, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. We're joining in the great angelic praise of God. And this reminds us of the holiness of God. So that's one prerequisite to conversion, is having an awareness of God's holiness. Now, let's look at how Isaiah responds to this revelation in verse 5. And I said, Woe is me. The first words that come out of the lips of Isaiah, Isaiah's first words in his book are not a prophetic woe to you. It's a personal woe is me. He's beginning to see himself rightly in light of the holiness of God. For I am lost. I love other translations that will say, for I am ruined or I am being undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, the very thing that, that God was wanting to see in Judah, see in the people of Jerusalem, a sense of humility enters into Isaiah's heart. He is fully aware in a moment's notice that his lips can't join in the praise and in the singing of the seraphim. It would be hypocritical for them to do so in light of who he was before this almighty God. He is undone. And if you go back to the cross chart, look at the cross chart again. One prerequisite to conversion is an awareness of God's holiness. A second prerequisite to conversion is an awareness of my sinfulness. That God is holy and that I am not. To whatever degree you realize it, those two things are prerequisites to conversion. And some of you might be asking, how can I go about cultivating an awareness of my sinfulness? A lot of you are like, I don't need any help, right? I got enough people telling me how sinful I am. I don't need any help from anybody else. But I'm sure there's some of you in the room who are like, Isaiah's having an awkward moment here. I'm not that big of a problem. I'm not that bad. Let me just encourage you to do a simple exercise this week. It's, it's simply called the tongue assignment. You might be familiar with it if you've gone through sonship discipleship materials. Uh, but it's, it's basically this. Here's the exercise. Starting now and for the next week, here's what you're to do. Do not gossip, even in prayer. Complain, criticize, blame shift, even if you're married. Defend yourself, boast, or lie. Don't do any of those for a week. And rather, replace those with a continuous affirmation and encouragement of other people around you and ongoing thanksgiving and praise. Don't do what God commands you not to do. Do what God commands you to do. Right? And rest assured, go do that for a week you're going to grow, you're going to have in a sense, and you're going to continue to grow in an awareness of your sinfulness. And you want to see that line drop out, take the next week and try to fix yourself. Seriously, try it. Okay? 
You can't do it. Jesus teaches that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The problem is not here. The problem is in here. And we can't fix ourselves. You can't. You need a new heart. You need a new heart with new desires. You need something from outside of yourself to come and to fix what's inside of you. Okay? So two prerequisites to conversion. Awareness of God's holiness and an awareness of my sinfulness. Okay? That takes us to the conversion of Isaiah. And we're going to see it happen in verses 6 and verse 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. This is a burning, on fire, angelic being who's taking tongs to get this coal out. And he moves towards Isaiah, verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's guilt was taken away and his sin was atoned for. How did this happen? The infinite God became intimate with Isaiah and transferred his holiness over to Isaiah. Here's what this is. We have the joy in this time in redemptive history to see this very clearly. This coal that the seraphim brings to the lips of Isaiah is a picture, it's a symbol of the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the same way that God sends the seraphim with the coal to touch the lips, to remove guilt, and to atone for sins, God the Father has sent Jesus Christ into the world to forgive your sins, to remove guilt, and to atone for your sins. That is what Jesus has done. And Isaiah's conversion for us in chapter 6 is a glorious powerful rehearsal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, this transfer of holiness, of of God making Isaiah holy, is exactly what we see in Scripture. Martin Luther, the great reformer, would call this the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. God made Jesus, who was a sinless, perfect God-man, sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. Our sin went to Jesus Christ on the cross of Christ, and in that moment, he transferred his holiness, his perfect righteousness to us. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's look back at the cross chart one last time. I want to show you what is true conversion. Before I do that, let me emphasize what conversion is not. Conversion is not growing up in a Christian family and going through Christian rituals. Okay? Just because your parents were Christians does not mean that you're a Christian. Isaiah, in his day, was considered a good man. Where was he before conversion? In the temple. Okay? Conversion is not growing up in a religious family. Conversion is not knowing that God exists, and conversion is not knowing that God is holy. Okay? That makes you a deist, not a Christian. Conversion light as well is not an awareness of your sinfulness. Just because you're morally concerned about the state of our country, you're morally concerned or even despairing about your own life and your own heart, that doesn't mean that you have experienced 
conversion. And conversion is not cleaning yourself up and making yourself better. Isaiah does not have the time to do that. In a moment, what happens is God sends the seraphim down and touches his lips and applies to him. God is the one who initiates, applies to him the removal of guilt and the atonement for his sins. Okay? True conversion is when God applies the cross of Jesus Christ to your life, empowering you with an ability to receive Jesus for how he's revealed himself in the gospel. Conversion happens when the gap is bridged, when God applies the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, to your life in a way that allows you to embrace Jesus for how he's revealed himself to be in the gospel, how he's freely offered himself to you in the gospel. That is conversion, which begs the question, have you been truly converted? Have you been truly converted? Have you embraced Jesus Christ as he is freely offered to you in the gospel? It's quite possible for you to be spiritually awakened, to be aware of, you, of God's holiness and to be aware of your sinfulness, but to not have the cross of Jesus Christ applied to you in a way that bridges that gap. Okay? Conversion happens at that moment when the cross covers the difference, when Jesus does what you cannot do on your own. Now, from there, because it's quite possible that as you enter into the Christian life, as you get converted, your understanding of God's holiness and your understanding of your own sinfulness might be small, right? But that's what the Christian life is all about. It's a continual reawakening and a growing awareness of God's holiness and a growing awareness of your sinfulness. You'll see on the next slide, the cross continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so does our love and our appreciation for Jesus Christ, for the Savior who was killed on that cross to make us right with God. All of the Christian life is a consistent reawakening to the glorious good news of the cross and how a holy God and a sinful humanity and a sinful you and me can be made right through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we see this clearly in the conversion of Isaiah. And in all honesty, it was interesting because I was reading this text uh, late this last week and I felt like I read it anew for the first time because I saw something that was so apparent but it just had never jumped off the page to me. God does not just convert Isaiah. He sends assurance through his word. Did you see? After, after, after it touches his lips, God sends word to him. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God doesn't just want you to make you clean. God wants you to know that you are clean. He wants to send assurance to you through his word declaring you clean. Women, your guilt has been removed. Do you know, in light of what Jesus has done, how beautiful you are to God? How spotless you are to God? You have been washed clean. You are without blemish. That is true of you. And God sees you that way. The almighty king of the universe sees you as cleansed, sees you as washed clean, sins forgiven. Men, your sins have been atoned for. 
You are not defined by your shortcomings and your failures and your sin. In light of what Jesus did for you on the cross, you are perfect. You are righteous. You are holy in God's eyes. And if the holy judge of the universe declares you not guilty, there's no one who can declare you guilty. You have been set free by Jesus Christ. And it is this liberating freedom. It is this liberating freedom. When the gospel opens up in your heart, when this gets applied to your life, it's what shoots you out on mission. This is how grace works. Grace gets applied to you. It frees you from guilt, and it sends you out like a rocket on mission. And that's what we're about to see as we turn the corner. So that was 1 through 7. That was the conversion of Isaiah. See now how the conversion of Isaiah leads immediately into the commission of Isaiah. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. See, it's God's divine strategy to, con- to, to equip to prepare his people at the point of conversion, to save them by grace alone, and then to send them out on mission, to commission them out. This is what God does. And then he goes on to give Isaiah his commission. And like I said a moment ago, it is a daunting commission from God. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places that are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is not a vindictive God who's walking around with a chip on his shoulder. These words are coming from a loving God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who shows patience, but who is also a God of integrity and who is faithful to his word. Even his word in Leviticus 26 that says he will bless those who walk in obedience and he will bring judgment on those who walk in disobedience. And after years and years and years of God's people walking in arrogant disobedience, refusing to turn back to God, God now commissions Isaiah to go and speak to them knowing they won't hear and knowing that judgment is coming. God called Isaiah to preach over and over and over again to a people who would not see who would not hear and who would not understand and they would not respond. And not just any people. He sent him to his own people. He sent him to the people that he grew up with. The people that he loved. The people in whom he was in relationship with. And he sent him with a message of repentance. Knowing they would not respond. 
Isaiah was called to preach not just for months or a few years. He was called to preach this gospel of repentance, this message of repentance until this generation passed. And I believe that the only thing that kept Isaiah going, the only thing that fueled his persistence, the only thing that empowered his faithfulness year after year was that he had a God-centered view of his commission. He knew it was God who had saved him. He knew it was God who had sent him. He knew it was God who had converted him. He knew it was the same God that applied grace to his life now commissioned him to go out. And because he was commissioned by God and he had a view of a God-centered commissioning, he was empowered to persist in faithfulness year after year. Consider some of these other examples. How about William Carey? Sailed to India from England in 1793. He lost his five-year-old son. His wife became mentally ill. He labored seven years until he saw his first conversion. And he lost a year's worth of precious translation work in a fire. But he still pressed on. Adoniram Judson, America's first foreign missionary, went to Burma in 1814. He lost a six-month-old baby, spent a year and a half in a death prison, lost his wife from fever, suffered a mental breakdown, and waited five years until he saw his first conversion. Robert Morrison, the first Protestant missionary to go to China in 1807, lost his young wife and worked seven years before he saw his first conversion, but still pressed on. Why? These are strong, gifted men with entrepreneurial gifts, had a lot of ability to succeed in so many other vocations. Many had wonderful families. They went on because they had a very God-centered view of their commission. And here's my concern. My concern is is that we may, as a people, drift from having a God-centered view of our commission and find ourselves oriented with a man-centered view of our commission. Functionally living. We might not say it with our mouths, but functionally living as though the call to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that God has commanded that really it's just the pastors who want you to go make disciples. That it's just your missional community leaders who are wanting you to take a courageous step to go share the gospel with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker. That it's just the deacons of the church who are telling us to love and to care for one another, to serve one another and put one another's needs in front of your own for the sake of building up family and showing radical love to, another, to a world that does not know it. And hear me, when, our, when the view of our commission becomes man-centered rather than God-centered, when things get difficult, when life gets hard, when you're not seeing fruit from your ministry, when you're not sensing much coming back to you, when you feel like you're really just grinding it out, it doesn't take long before your delight turns into duty. Your persistence becomes passivity and your faithfulness is replaced with forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. 
how great would it be? How much greater would it be if God renewed to us as his people a Godward vision of our commission? Especially at this time in redemptive history. Isaiah was commissioned to preach to a dying generation. To preach repentance. We, on the other hand, have been commissioned by God to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ who through himself is reconciling all things to himself through the blood of the cross. Isaiah was commissioned by God at a time when God's people would not listen. We have been commissioned by God at a time where he has sent out his Holy Spirit in advance, out in front of us. He's doing all the work of preparing hearts. He's doing all the work of softening hearts. He's doing all the work of applying the gospel to people's lives we get the joy of being able to speak it. How much greater would it be if we actually reckon with the fact that we have been co-missioned by God, that we get the great joy and privilege of being on mission with God? How would that change things? What would that type of renewal look like? And... I want to also say, for those of you who, who maybe you're saying, I, yeah, I'm with you, but I'm not quite sure what I've been commissioned to. I'm still kind of waiting for that Isaiah-like moment. And until I get this Isaiah-like moment, I'm just going to kind of keep hanging out because I don't want to go in the wrong direction. If you hear anything this morning, hear this and hear this clearly. Your conversion is your commission. Your conversion is your commission. They go together. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2.9 when he says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for my own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what God is inviting you into. Now, Today, in this moment, these two things aren't separated. They go together. Your conversion is your commission. You have been sent. We are a sent people. And that's good news. So let me close by saying this. We've, we've looked at two things. We've looked at the conver- conversion of Isaiah. We've looked at the commission of Isaiah. Now here's the reality. There's some of, there's some of you in the room and I hope you hear this because I don't want you to be missing this and I don't want you to be confused. There are some of you in the room who um, you're all about the commission. You're all about it. You love the idea of living amongst a community of people, of being on mission together, to seeing the world uh, made right, to being about making this just a better place for people to live. You're all about doing that sort of work. But you've never experienced true conversion. I don't want you to mistake being on mission for God with being on mission with God. You can't back your way into the kingdom of God. So don't mistake the kingdom for the king. We want you to meet the king. We want you to meet King Jesus. We want you to reckon with the fact that God is holy and that you are not and you are going to have to give an account and it's better for you to say on that day, I plead the blood of the cross rather than bring whatever you think you have to the table. We want you, we deeply and desperately want you to meet Jesus, okay? Now, at the same time, there's some people in the room who who love Jesus, right? You've been converted, you know it's true, you feel forgiven, you feel guilt removed, you, you feel like a new creation, but your life lacks a little bit of direction. 
you don't have a sense of purpose. Hear it. Your conversion is your commission. Don't wait. Join. God's, God's commissioning you. He's calling you. He's sending you uh, to be a part of his redemptive story in the world. And he invites you into it. Pastor Ray Orland was here three weeks ago. He preached on Sunday. Uh, many of you were here for that. He also taught at, uh, at our Porterbrook uh, Omaha Conference Day on Saturday all day. Uh, that's a day where we gather students from around the region uh, to train them in theology, to equip them to do the very works of ministry that God's commissioned them to do. And what he said as he started his first talk on Saturday morning, uh, what he said was so, so encouraging. This is what he said. It's remarkable to look around this room and think about what is happening. And what is happening in this room is happening all across America and is evidence of God's power in this generation. God is working through you. You are significant. At the fundamental God-created core of who you are, you are not fundamentally a problem. You are fundamentally God's divine strategy. You are a living, walking, breathing, divine strategy that in community only gets better exponentially. Cormdale, God is at work in Omaha. And you, we, are his divine strategy. Think about that this afternoon. Let's pray. God, thank you for Isaiah 6. Thanks for the joy of sitting in this text for the last couple weeks personally. Thanks for what you have taught me and shown me in your word. God, we want to pray for those who have mistook the kingdom for the king, that you would bring them to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, would you apply conversion to the hearts and to the lives of people in this room who have not yet known you. For your glory. And God, would you orient our view of commission around you. Would we hear your words And would we respond with great joy, with great anticipation, with great enthusiasm? Here we are. Send us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.